genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Say I would have taken the job at this place but ended up ending up with four kids. Probably would have stayed with two at the time. But say I would have, that would have been, that would have cost me, caused me a lot of problems. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by, of course, the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I am a business psychologist. And my name is Al and I am a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Yep, so welcome back to yet another episode, another week. I can't believe this week's gone by. I mean, mm -hmm. we said that uh, we said that August lasted forever, but September seems to be going super quick just mm -hmm. to make up. So what are we talking about today, Lee? Yeah, it really is. Second week of September. I think what freaks me out about September is it's October next month. Mm. And then that feels like countdown to Christmas, which is just like, I'm sure it was like June last week. Yeah, yeah, this, it does go fast this time of year. Um, we are going to be talking today about, well, we're referring back to one of the first episodes we did, maybe the 12th, 14th episode we did. It's called Work From Home, um, and it was the impact of the cost of living crisis. It is, I think, still to date, one of the most downloaded episodes that we've had. Um, and so we thought, well, let's revisit that. And we've now obviously met up with a few more experts around that, around financial well-being, around whose job it is, which the leaders, the personal, the company, whatever. Um, and so Leanne said, why don't we do an entire episode on this? Yeah, so we we initially talked about this, I think it was actually last October, so almost 12 months ago, we talked about it. It's work from home dead, the impact of the cost of living crisis and the cost of living crisis continues. People in the UK, people around the world are really struggling with decreases in disposable incomes. And, and for some, that does mean that people are being pushed into debt and in some cases, poverty. So as a business, you know, it's important to to be mindful of what does that mean to you? What impact does financial well-being have on your people, on their performance, on the culture of your business, even your bottom line? Why should you as a leader care about financial well-being? Yeah, and this is going to be a slightly heavier episode uh, than some of the August ones. The August ones, we kept them light because you're probably on vacation stroke holidays 
Uh, you don't want to be listening to anything too deep in in uh, in August. So, but we are going to dive a little bit deeper into this because financial well-being is probably going to continue to be an issue for the next few years. I don't think it's any secret that it looks like most most of the major countries are going into recession, or if not recession, at least flat growth. Um, energy prices are high, rents are high. You see, if you go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, you'll see people complaining about their rents, about just struggling to make ends meet. So we are joined by an amazing guest, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. Now, there's a story which I'll, uh, Leanne will probably tell you at some point around this, uh, but he is the 50th anniversary professor of the Organisational Psychology and Health at Alliance Manchester Business School. What a title! And Leanne went to the Alliance Manchester Business School, didn't you, to do your MSc? I did. I often forget that I went to business school. It's kind of cool, isn't it? But yeah, no, no, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, huge icon in the psychology world. Can't quite believe he agreed so quickly to be on the podcast. Um, sadly, he, he, he left Manchester Business School the year I joined. So while he was one of the reasons I decided to study there, I didn't have the, the privilege, privilege of, of studying under him. Um, so yeah, so I was very excited for this interview and then I got food poisoning and I was really, really ill. Um, so I couldn't, so I'll have to do it. So I still have yet to meet Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, but I am very happy that he is on the podcast. Yeah. And he did say at the very end of the interview, don't worry, Leanne, we will make it happen. So that will happen at some point soon. So yeah, unbelievable that we have uh, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper on the show, but we are also joined by two other incredible guests. We are joined by Kushbu Patel, who is Head of Engagement and, and Inclusion at Metro Bank, and Ryan Briggs, who is the Founder and Financial Education and Wellbeing Lead at Finwell. Yep. So we're meeting our guests very, very shortly. But first, it's our favourite time of the week. It's the News Roundup. Cue the jingle. Okay, Leah, what have we got? Keeping it short this week, we've got a lot of cool stuff to get through, but I do have a Word of the Week. Word of the Week alert. So I do have to uh, thank Alexis Zana for this um, on We Connect on LinkedIn. Uh, she's she's very cool. She's a leadership and culture expert. She's a co-director of Human Leaders. She is the business partner of Sally, who we had back in our burnout episode. We like Sally. We do. Um, and she's also a top 20 voice of LinkedIn 2022. Nice. So a bit of a cheese. So I saw her post this and I was like, um, Alexis, can I have that for the word of the week, please? And she was like, sure. Um, so this is, this is thanks to Alexis. I think you'll like this one, Al. Are you ready? Yes. The word is spuddle. <laughs> I like that. Like, I like words that like sound like tabard and porcupine. Say it again. Spuddle. As in, and if we were Southern, we'd say spuddle. Spuddle. And if we were American, we'd say spuddle. I'm not going to try and attempt that accent. So what the hell does spuddle mean? So spuddle was coined in the 17th century. It means to work ineffectively, to be extremely busy whilst achieving absolutely nothing. I think we all know someone like that. Yeah. I'm not looking at you. I'm just... <laughs> I think I think everyone knows someone who's like, oh my god, I'm my oh, I'm so busy. Just one of my one of my pet pets, pet hates or pet peeves, pet peeves. Um, what is when you say to someone, how's things? And they go, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. It's like, oh, shut up, man. You're just being, you're just being a dick now. Anyway. <laughs> I must admit, I do struggle when people, and also when people go, are you busy? I'm like, no. no. <laughs> like I'm, I'm being kept, I'm being kept busy enough. But am I rushed off my feet? No, that is a choice I've intentionally made. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost like, oh, no, I'm so busy and therefore I'm so important. I see quite a few people on Twitter who say, oh, one of the biggest problems I've got is that I've got so many ideas and just not enough time to implement them. Oh, fuck. 
Idea oh, is cheap, well, friend. Exactly. Ideas <laughs> are cheap. Anyway, sorry, back to Spuddle. So, yes, thank you to Alexis for that one. Do go and follow her on LinkedIn. I will leave a link in the show notes and you'll be able to see her original post as well, um, which is is quite an interesting take on on the term spuddle. One to look out for, but a nice, nice word, um, a, a, a perhaps troubling definition now, but a very enjoyable word to say, spuddle. Yes, we like that. We like spuddle. that. Spuddle, sorry. What else we got, Lee? Uh, well, I have a little announcement. We have a little announcement, Al, don't we? We do. We? We do. So Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture has been invited to the 6th Annual Mad World Summit happening October 12th in London, UK. Yep, we went to the sister show, The Water Cooler. If you've listened to any one of our podcasts over the last six months, you'll hear probably a guest from The Water Cooler. Um, what we basically did was put ourselves, we, we, well, there was a lovely guy called Gary from Oboe Life um, who provided us with a little booth and we set it up as a podcast studio at on site, which we're going to be doing again this time. We are. If you haven't heard of the Mad World Summit, it basically exists to shift the whole conversation around mental health um, in the workplace from stigma to solutions. So very much a focus on fresh thinking, drawing in new professionals into the field whilst also building their capability and empowering those who are already here to find more effective solutions for employee mental health, well-being and culture. The event is really full packed it's just a one-day event but my goodness they have packed it in there are real life case studies uh, there's a whole all the talks are going to focus on an understanding of best practice and work and um, worst practice and also lots of insights into strategies that are actually delivering tangible benefits which is all going to be about very much like the water cooler all about those tangible results we actually having an impact on employee well-being so we as al said will be partnering again with our friends at obo to record the truth lies and workplace culture podcast from the event itself and we will try and bring you some exclusive content from the speakers and what a lineup al have you seen i have what have we got heathrow airport l'oreal warner brothers yeah uh, lloyd's hsbc bank lloyd's of london yeah, absolutely. There are so many people to name a few. Dr. Sarah Hughes from Mind, uh, Javier Acave, Javier who's a CFO at Heathrow Airport, Malcolm Staves, who's a global VP of Health and Safety at L'Oreal. And of course, we'll be reconnecting with some of our favorite Truth and Lies alumni, including Karen Sancto from Microsoft, Ryan Hopkins from Deloitte, and Kushbu Patel, who is our guest this episode. We love Kushbu. She's so such a lovely lady, but so knowledgeable, and, and she's she's really cool. You're going to love it. So if you do want to go, which by the way you, you do. do, if you're in the UK, <laughs> we're not in the UK, and we're flying back for it. Um, so if if we're coming back from 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 Bosnia, you can come from Stevenage or Glasgow or wherever you are. Uh, so I think the uh, the employer passes are I think they're just about oh, two hundred quid. Yeah, yeah, 195 plus VAT, but that includes access to all the entire summit. So you're talking the keynotes, the roundtables, the workshops, the exhibition, uh, plus refreshments, lunch and drink. So it's a bit of a bargain, actually. We'll leave a link where you can book your... Oh, and us. And us. And us. You're going to meet us as well. So that's that's like 190 quid's worth of ticket True. there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you'll meet Our us. Our meet and greets are like 300 quid per person. So oh, like, easy, easy, easy. It's extra if you want us to wear headwear. Anyway, where if people are... In, I don't know, I just thought... Like hat would be no, it'd just be quite cool to wear a hat. Anyway, so if people are interested, where do they where do they go? I'll leave a link. I can't remember. Cool. Google Google Mad World Summit. It will come up. I will leave a link in the show notes. And yeah, hopefully we will see you there. 
Okay, so let's go meet our guests. Lee, who have we got first? We have, very excited, we have Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. He is recognised as a world-leading expert on well-being and the media's first choice for comment on any workplace issue, having written more than 250 books on workplace well-being. He is, as Al said, the 50th anniversary professor of organizational psychology and health at the Alliance Manchester Business School. He's also co-founder of Robertson Cooper, a pioneering well-being consultancy. Uh, fun fact, I applied for a job there and I got rejected. And the co-chair of National Forum for Health and Wellbeing at Work, um, who have recently published the 2023 Financial Wellbeing Guide, which we will be focusing on today. Let's go meet Kerry. As you can tell from my accent, I come from Hollywood. Uh, I'm a professor of organizational psychology and health at the Manchester Business School, the Alliance Manchester Business School, as it's called. And I guess I'm fairly well known for stress and well-being in the workplace. I've been doing research on that topic for decades. Uh, and uh, well-being is extremely topical at the moment for most organizations. So our next guest is Kushbu Patel. Kushbu is Head of Engagement Inclusion at Metro Bank, um, a challenger bank in the UK. I don't know whether they're in the US just yet, but I think I'm sure they've got plans to. Uh, she spearheads the, the strategy on culture, colleague engagement, diversity, inclusion, well-being. She's a very busy lady. She built a successful career in the financial services with names such as HM Treasury. Mm, had some dealings with them recently. Royal Bank of Scotland, NatWest. And she's basically created this amazing award-winning culture at Metro Bank, which has now been named as one of UK's most loved workplaces in 2022. Let's go meet Kushbu and hear more about Metro Bank. You've rightly mentioned fairly new bank. Um, so we started in 2010 um, in uh, central London. And since then, we've grown arms and legs. So, you know, one store, um, and I'll come on to why stores, not branches in a second, but one store, and we've grown to just under four and a half thousand colleagues now and over 70 stores across the UK, um, England and Wales. And I must say the Wales part, I'm Welsh. I bought Metro Bank into Wales. I'm very proud of that part. Our final guest is Ryan Briggs. Ryan is the founder of Finwell, an ambitious company dedicated to helping employees improve financial well-being and empower healthier relationships with money. Their clients include Sky, Brewdogs and the CIPD, to name just a few. And in 2023, they won the Inside Out Award for Best Financial Wellness Initiative for their work with Hayes. Let's meet Ryan. Who am I? I'm Ryan. Uh, what do I do? Um, I'm passionate about helping people understand, measure and improve their financial well-being. So we do that with lots of companies. Um, what am I famous for? I, I wouldn't say I'm famous for it, but um, I was given a very big opportunity back in the day to become a professional football player. Um, but also um, that was taken away from me as well by the same person. And that was... That was the king of the jungle. If uh, anybody remembers, I'm a celebrity. That was Harry Redknapp. So, um, yeah, I watched that show with uh, mixed emotions, shall we say. Yeah, my wife was not voting for him. So there's a lot to cover here. So what we're going to do, we've kind of broken it down into uh, what it is, what is financial well-being, why we should care, and then Leanne identified five red flags. So if you, if you, if these sound familiar, then there's some trouble potentially brewing in your organisation. Shall we start, Leanne, with what is financial well-being and why should we care? So rather than try and answer this question ourselves, 
Why not ask Professor Sir Kerry Cooper? Okay, basically, when you're looking at the field of well-being more generally, there are lots of sources of stress on people in the workplace. They could be your relationship with your boss. It could be about your career. It's about long working hours, about being overloaded. But it's also partly about um, your financial circumstances and how that affects your health and well-being, productivity and the like. So financial well-being is just another source of stress for an individual in the workplace. It's become more significant. It started becoming significant in 2008 to 2015 during the financial crisis. Lots of people lost their job. Job insecurity was rife. Uh, people uh, were out of jobs for quite a long time, lost their jobs in the finance sector. Something like 35 to 40% of people lost their jobs in that six, seven year financial crisis we're in. The major, I call that the depression rather than the recession. I'd call it depression too. Now we're in a recession. Many countries, Germany, Britain is bouncing along the bottom. It really is in recession, in effect. Financial well-being is all about the problems that your finances are having on you and how it's affecting you at work, in your family, and elsewhere. So Carrie mentioned the global financial crisis there, which... We do we do talk about quite a bit and our younger listeners might be you know might be wondering what the big deal is but Carrie did say that 35 to 40% of people lost their jobs during the global financial crisis so it, it was huge and yes while redundancy is a leading cause of a personal financial crisis there are also many other life events that could put our financial well-being at risk and these these could be things that your employees are well experiencing things like divorce a new baby carer responsibilities moving house health problems a bereavement addiction and of course more recently we've also all been experiencing the impacts of the cost of living crisis so the 2022 ci PD Good Work Index found that employees are really feeling the impacts of the growing financial crisis. 29% has said they are occasionally struggling to keep up with bills and financial commitments. And 90% of those earning £20,000 per year are finding it a constant struggle. Yeah, and I think that most of us at some point in our life have had some kind of financial hardship. I know that I'm very famously went bankrupt for about £103,000 about God, 15 years ago, maybe we'll be getting up for 20 years ago now. Um, and that was just a horrible, horrible time. So it's likely that we can empathize a little bit with employees who are experiencing these sort of difficulties around finances. But beyond that, as leaders, should we actually care? Is it even our responsibility? Well, Carrie Cooper explains that the well-being of our employees has this direct impact on our business, and therefore we need to be thinking about their financial well-being too. Well, number one, the organization has a legal in almost all developed countries, certainly in the EU and beyond. They have a legal responsibility for the health and well-being of their employees. That's legal. Okay, so that's one thing. Why they should be concerned about it is, why why are they concerned about people's mental health? Because it adversely affects their productivity and performance. Also, they're off ill with it. If people are off ill with stress, it's something like two or three times longer than if you have cancer. If you have severe depression, severe anxiety, you're off a hell of a long time, much more than any other illness. Um, so if 
people get very low and depressed by their financial circumstances. And and by the way, financial circumstances is quite a broad construct. That is your own financial situation, but it could be your feeling of job insecurity. If you're in an organization where people have been made redundant and you're a survivor of that redundancy, uh, that that's a part of financial insecurity. I'm worried I'm going to lose my job. I have commitments, I have a, a mortgage, this, that, and the other. So why they should be interested and why they should be concerned about it is like they are about the mental health of people. If you want to be really crude about it, you know, if, if, their, if their mindset is that we want this person performing, we don't want them off ill for a long period of time. Therefore, let's deal with their psychological state, their financial circumstance, any way we can help and support them is part of our duty of care. So that's why they should be concerned about it. But to be honest with you, more and more organizations now are concerned about people's mental well-being, financial insecurity, financial difficulties are a driver. So yeah, as Carrie said that, you know, there is an impact on our business, but fundamentally we're also breaking the law if we're not taking some kind of care for our employees well-being. Um, so yeah, a word of caution there. So Ryan, as we've said, is a founder and financial education and well-being lead at Finwell. He agrees that more and more businesses are starting to take responsibility for employee well-being, including financial well-being, and cites another important commercial argument. Businesses that care about well-being attract and retain talent. Because because companies didn't think it was their responsibility. Um, I think with any anything that happens in their employees' life now is maybe not their responsibility, but is of interest to a company because, you know, the mixture now of, of hybrid working and, and mental health and, and everything else, you know, there is no work life, home life so much anymore. And it's all about performance and, and being the best that we can be in all areas of well-being. So it makes sense. It's the right thing to do for, for, for one from, from a company's point of view. But it makes business sense as well. You know, if, if companies want to be seen as, as leading companies and want to get the most out of their people and have good cultures and, you know, recruit the best talent and retain the best talent, they need to look at all aspects of this. And if, we, you know, we talk about sport quite a lot of marginal gains, if, if, you know, having something like financial well-being in place could really help their people and it could be the difference between, recruiting the best people and, and keeping the best people. So it's um, it's something that companies I don't think can ignore anymore. Um, but it does open up a lot of, you know, discussion and, and challenges for companies as well as to who to use, what to use, what works, what doesn't. Um, yeah, which isn't easy, I know. There is an increasing amount of research being done into financial well-being and its relationship with um, financial stress and workplace performance. These are things that you would have heard us talk about before in terms of, of general well-being or psychological well-being. Financial stress is linked to absenteeism, people being off work sick. It's linked to presenteeism, when people um, show up at work, but they're not performing it at their best. It has an impact on organizational commitment. People who lack organizational commitment tend to leave their jobs. So yeah, more people are off work, more people are underperforming, more people are leaving your business. Issues that cost the UK 
billions and billions of pounds each year. But let's put that in numbers that actually mean something to us or a bit more tangible. The latest CIPD reward management survey found that 28 of respondents reported that money worries negatively affect their work performance. So a third of people are aware that their financial challenges are affecting their performance at work. 10% found it impact, impacted their ability to make decisions at work and 10% said they'd actually taken time off work to deal with money problems. So the people impacted by this tended to earn either less than £20,000 per year or perhaps surprisingly £60,000 a year or more. Financial well-being is not just about supporting those on lower incomes. So I think that even at this early stage, we can say that there is clearly a case for for prioritising financial well-being and within an, and, and the impact it would have on the organisation detrimentally if someone was struggling a little bit. So is the answer that we need to pay everyone more? Of course, as business leaders, we don't really want to hear that because currently things are a bit tight as they are in most industries. Now, with the larger businesses, that seems to have been the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to pay people more. Almost half of all private organisations have increased pay over the last 12 months and 16% are offering bonuses or allowances to cover this cost of living crisis. But what if you don't have this budget as a business owner? What if you can't afford to pay for these wage increases? Well, we ask Carrie. But I, I, it, it, people are not likely to be asking necessarily for more money. They need help. They, they may be in a real turmoil and they get support. Uh, there are so many organizations out there that are providing the support to businesses. You know, like you seek support for counseling from EAPs or you seek support for uh, mental health first aid uh, from organizations out there that help train your mental health first aiders. The same thing would apply to this. I don't think it's a it's it's not complicated. Yeah, that might be the case that they feel they need a wage increase as one vehicle. But most of the time, it's people have just got overwhelmed with their finances. They may be really good at their job, but when it comes to their own personal finance, they got themselves in trouble. They just need some support to get through it. And the the payoffs will be great because, number one, the more you provide this, there's a like there's lots of companies like Close Brothers is one of them that comes in and does training, helps people with their own personal financial positions. There's a whole number of these kinds of companies. They're very good. And what they do, they help them sort out their problem. This problem will trans the lack of this problem will translate into higher perform, better performance, higher productivity in the end. It'll pay for itself. Just like EAPs pay for themselves. I did a major study on all the EAPs in the UK years and years ago. And we we looked at it and, and saw the cost benefit, looked at the cost benefit analysis of buying in an EAP. And if you help people with their personal problems, how that was going to reflect itself in increased performance, less sickness, absence days and the like. It, it, it It's a no-brainer. Financial well-being isn't necessarily just throwing money at the problem and paying people more. It's about supporting people through a financial crisis. As Leanne's pointed out, 
people over the between twenty thousand and sixty thousand tend to have fewer financial problems. So that means over sixty thousand, you could potentially have more financial problems. Um, so what's even better is that if you if you work hard and put things in place, you can have mechanisms already in place that'll prevent employees from falling into these kind of problems. Yeah, it sounds cheesy, doesn't it? But I guess it's that old proverb of, you know, you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. It's, you know, as leaders, we're not expected to be the bank of mum and dad. We're not expected to bail out employees that are in a financial crisis, but we can provide them the support that they need in that moment and empower them to improve their financial well-being long term. And I think that the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8 proved that bailing people out doesn't affect their behavior. I mean, the bankers and all these back to their old tricks by all accounts. So I was really curious. I wanted to know, how would I know that I have members of my team who are struggling, that have got some kind of financial difficulties? Are there any kind of red flags we should be looking out for? As I mentioned, the Financial Wellbeing Guide 2023 was recently published and is a phenomenal free resource. It will discuss exactly this. I was very sweet to say that I came up with the five red flags. I didn't. This report did. What we have done is we're breaking it down even more for you uh, with the help of our guests so we can explore these warning signs and some potential solutions for you as well, all with the aim of improving the financial well-being of our employees. So the first red flag is that you don't have the data. If you listen to any single one of these episodes of the last 54, 55 episodes, you will hear Leanne tell you that it's all about data. So this is the insights that you need to be collecting. If you use something like our RX7, which is our proprietary way for measuring workplace culture, then you will know that we provide an awful lot of data for you to use. But a lot of the new tools don't necessarily cover financial well-being. As Carey said, a lack of evidence is not necessarily a lack of problem. It all starts with the data. Ryan totally agrees. It all starts with data, if possible, as well, um, and working out what the need is. Definitely, you know, discussion and, and looking at what data might be available, maybe gathering more data. We've just introduced a new service that can help do that and kind of measure the financial well-being of an entire workforce and, you know, establish their areas of focus and then start to drill down, well, what kind of support might be needed? Is it is it access to content, you know? Um, do people just want to learn more and understand more and build their confidence in their own time and at their own pace possibly do they want to engage with interactive group workshops be it face-to-face -face or online possibly do they need one-to-one -one support you know do they need uh, that additional human interaction to speak to someone that's going to be kind and empathetic and and knowledgeable to, to help them understand where they're at and what they need to do to, to move things forward possibly that as well so there's lots of different things that are available to them, whether that's through our company or, or others, but it all starts with that data piece and knowing what is needed. Lots of times we've worked with companies and they've said to us, oh, we, we really want to do a, a session on, I don't know, uh, pensions. And we say, great, yeah, we can definitely do that, maybe as part of a package or, or whatever it might be, part of an ongoing program. But we'll always ask, why, can we just ask, why do you want to do that? Um, and they kind of say, well, because, you know, a few people have, have said they're really interested in that, and that's absolutely fine, but that could be some money and time wasted if they don't know how many people actually want that. Mm -hmm. So with that particular company, we did a bit of research. We've done some polls on some uh, other sessions, 
And it turns out that pensions, albeit very important, wasn't the big biggest thing for, for their people. You know, they wanted to focus on money management and budgeting and the property ladder and protecting their families, whatever it might be. So definitely asking what people want and need in, in uh, an engaging way is important. Employee insights really is all about asking people what they need. It's as simple as that. And that's what employee insights are. And yet only 10% of employees in the UK have said that their employer has ever asked them about their financial well-being or the support that they might need. There is a gap here. We need to be gathering the data. Ryan also raised a really good point here in terms of taking a narrow approach to to measurement or a narrow approach to uh, benefits. Yes, pension support is hugely important. But if you have a digital agency where the majority of your people are under 30, thinking about their pension, while they'll be pleased one is in place, it's probably not going to be as important to them as other things like savings schemes or pay advances or hardship loans. As Ryan explains, even by just considering the demographics of your workforce, that can be an excellent starting point in terms of data. I think just the mindset, uh, if you look at different age you know, demographics, I read a, a massively interesting book that I would highly recommend to all your listeners called The Psychology of Money. Just to get an understanding of people's relationship with money, we talk a lot about that with our work because it's not just about facts and educational stuff. There's also a whole other side to this, which is about psychology of money and, and emotional finance and, and behavioral finance. Um, and dependent on your age, we'll, we'll kind of mean that you've you've experienced life in a certain way you know if we're looking at it now we're, we're you know we've we've in the last few years come out of a very low interest rate environment that people have had for years you know other people that might be a bit older remember when interest rates was actually really high and people were giving keys back to you know for their property so it really depends on your experience of how old you are and what you've lived through that will dictate maybe your attitudes towards money and um that then dictates, you know, the choices that you make uh, as well. So we, we, it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating part of of our work to try and work with different age demographics. You also have to change language and, and tone and, you know, the ways that maybe you talk about money and trying to make it engaging and fun, especially for, for, for the younger generations. Um, but even their appetite to save and invest for their future and take control actually is quite encouraging we found for, for younger generations so uh yeah it's de- there's definitely not you know again you know one way of, of looking at this so the solution to not having enough data is to get some <laughs> and i think that um if if you do have some way of monitoring or surveying or speaking to your uh, to your employees at the moment then ensure it does cover financial the, the financial wellness side of it if it doesn't, there's no need necessarily to go out there and buy a tool that does because the CIPD offers this set of validated, reliable measures. I'm right, reading what Leanne wrote here uh, of financial well-being, but they can be actually used in your employee surveys. So Kerry shared this great example of how not asking your employees what they want could end up costing you your business. No, it could, it could be part of the way to the solution, but it's a, it depends on whether you as the owner of that business or the CEO made the decision to do that without talking to your employees. I'll never forget once I was a a non-executive director of a small company made up of about 40 employees. 
they were really nice guys. They went to Cambridge together, three of them. They founded this business. And they wanted, they they were guys who had this philosophy, a small company, it was quite successful. And they wanted to give their employees part of the business. They wanted to give them shares. So they brought me in only for that purpose. So an advisor, but I was sitting as a non-exec director on on the board to do this because they thought this was a big deal, 40, 50 employees. So I said, that's, they said, what do you think of this? I said, in principle, it's a great idea. You know, you're giving them a part of the business, but don't you think it'd be a good idea? I said, to go talk to the employees that I should go talk to them. You don't have to do this. I, that's my job. I'll do that. You're bringing me in to do this. All right. And I'll go talk to the employees and find out, is this something they want? Because in the end, if you think about, you want to change an organization, you want to make a difference, you ask the employees. They are the guys and gals at the coalface. They're the ones who live this job day in and day out, Monday to Friday, all hours, etc. So I went to the shop floor and I started to talk to all of them, one at a time, had lunch, coffee. I go back to the board meeting. I said, they don't want that. So they said, what? I said, but everybody's talking about share ownership with your employees. I said, quite a lot of them would want it. This particular group don't particularly want it. I b tend to believe, by the way, in share ownership for employee, employee share ownership. I think it's a great construct because they feel part of the business. John Lewis Partnership is a perfect example of it. They were very successful during the pandemic. They were probably the only company that was making money during the pandemic. Um, Zoom. Yeah, and Zoom, for sure, Zoom. Okay, so they said, well, what do they want? I said, you you won't believe what they want. See, I didn't know until I started to talk to them. What they wanted was health care coverage, private health care coverage in case they got ill or their families got ill. That's what they wanted. So the second red flag is that nobody is talking about it. Nobody is talking about financial well-being. Nobody is talking about any financial challenges they're experiencing. That's very common. Two-thirds of employees in the UK have said that they would never talk to their employer about a financial crisis they're experiencing. So it is very common. There is a good chance that two-thirds of your workforce may well be experiencing poor financial well-being currently, and you have no idea. Let's hear more on that from Kerry. Since I focus in on the workplace, then my concern is about how do we get people to be open about their financial circumstances with their employer? Because the employer wants to help. Many employers want to help. But if employees, a recent survey found a huge percentage of people, two out of three, will not reveal to their employer that they're having any financial difficulty, yet it affects them at work. It affects them in their relationships. It affects them at home and um, and their their performance as well. So how do we get these people to actually talk about it, feel open to talk about it? How do we get the organization to train line managers to be able uh, to broach this subject with their subordinates and their direct reports? And uh, again, uh, about a third of people, it is found, um, feel that their employer, you know, well, a lot of them feel their employer. Number one, they don't want to talk about it with their boss. 
Number two, they don't think their boss would necessarily be open to talking about it. And many organizations are not really dealing with this as, as an issue. They feel that would be intrusive or it's not in their bailiwick. It's not what we should be doing things on. Although EAPs, employee assistance programs, are available in bigger organizations, both in the public sector and the private sector. And an aspect of them is not just psychological counseling, but an aspect is about financial counseling as well. So we just need more openness about it because we're in a recession. Things aren't going to get good for a long time, particularly because we have Brexit. Brexit will keep having a negative impact on Britain. Uh, but the financial crisis, well, I wouldn't define, not the financial crisis, but the recession, the cost of living crisis, energy, all that kind of stuff is going to affect the whole of Europe for quite a long time. Uh, particularly as long as the Ukrainian war goes on. Ryan agrees that smashing the stigma is a first step. We need to get people talking about money. And that's probably one of our biggest missions, really, from, from Finwell, that we want the first step for people to feel like they're comfortable talking about money. That's the big thing I think we need at the moment. Very similar to mental health and well-being, that's pretty much the first step to make, you know, smash the, the, the stigma and, and break the taboos. Uh, create psychologically safe spaces at companies and, and for employees where both employee teams and leadership teams can come together and talk about money, you know, because we, we, we fe uh, feature a lot about or talk a lot about um, the fact that we're not actually all in the same boat. I don't know if you remember everyone used to say, oh, COVID and, and the pandemic, we're all in the same boat and we absolutely disagree with that. We're all maybe in the same storm is how we explain it. Um, but it's absolutely um, affecting people in different ways. Um, some of us are, you know, going to just sell through it and that's fine, you know, not going to affect us too much and that, that's okay. But for others, we, we need to work a bit harder. We might need to be out on our, our rowing boat and, and working a bit harder and looking at our money a bit more. And others are, are, are drowning, you know, others are really struggling. And I think the nice thing that's come out of the way our group workshops have developed is that culture piece and that bringing a company together um, to realize that we're all in the same storm and we need to get through it together and, and support each other, really. I love that idea of saying not necessarily we're in the same boat, we're in the same storm. I think that's so, so important. And it shows empathy without necessarily sort of just lying. Because if you are on 250 grand a year and someone's on 25 grand a year and struggling, it's going to be difficult to show genuine empathy empathy well not empathy or genuine sympathy there because you're not in the same situation but this is where empathy really really comes to the fore rewind to last week's episode have a listen because we took all about the leadership and empathy in that episode kushbu who's the head of engagement and inclusion at metrobank she stresses that good line management and well-being are correlated the whole point of this is line managers are the gateway into the colleague experience. Um, so this panel was chaired by um, a gentleman, Andrew, from Mind. Um, and Mind have just released a workplace well-being report. And there's lots of statistics in there that basically say the better your line manager is, the better your well-being is going to be. Right. It's completely correlated. So we have to make sure that our line managers are properly equipped and equipped and confident to be able to support our colleagues there's a difference between saying ah oh, come to me if you need anything or i see you're not yourself i've put 15 minutes in the diary let's chat and then during that chat 
to signpost to the right tools or the right areas. Because then the other part of this is you can have the most loveliest line managers giving you all the time in the world, but they themselves suffer because they take the burden of the whole thing on and they're not trained. You know, they're not psychotherapists, they're not counsellors, bless them. They have to be able to signpost with confidence to the right areas or the right tools. And we, as an organisation, we have to be able to provide that. So providing line managers with skills, capability and confidence, but then also providing those line managers and colleagues with the tools and environment to be able to support wellbeing. Kushbi was talking about Andrew Berry there uh, from Mind, who was a previous guest on the show. Well, we're checking out his episode as well on mental health. I will leave a link in the show notes. The impact of line managers really can't be underestimated. We've mentioned it before. We've talked about it before. If there is one thing you do as a business owner, train your line managers, train them in empathy, train them in emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills, even listening. If you haven't done that, if you haven't trained your line manager managers in these skills, that is a red flag. Let's hear more from Kerry. Here, here's where our problem is in the whole field of well-being. But let's look at financial well-being is only one aspect of it. The problem we have is to do with line managers. What we tend to do in developed countries is we recruit and promote people to managerial roles based on their technical skills, not their people skills. This is a very fundamental problem we have which we haven't directly tackled. You know, we look at we look at somebody who's a good marketeer and we say, that guy's great. He's, his sales are fantastic. Let's make him a marketing manager. That teacher in a classroom is outstanding. So let's make her um, a head teacher, you know, with minimal amount of training or even thinking about whether they're competent enough to do it. So these are, by the way, people who don't have much EQ not much emotional intelligence. They're technically really good, great marketeer, great teacher, great social worker, put them in a managerial role and they fail. And it's because they might not have the people skills to put people together. Now, what do people skills mean? Social, interpersonal skills, emotional intelligence, being able to empathize with your colleagues, understand seeing their change of behavior, being socially sensitive so you notice somebody's not the same so you know i've noticed that you know al usually is very ebullient he's in a meeting he's you know he's participating like everybody else in the last few weeks he's just quiet totally withdrawn and when he does come in he's very angry very aggressive now a good line manager recognizes a change of behavior and that's a line manager all the way from shop floor to top floor. This goes all the way up the system. Anybody who's in a managerial role. So that person is more likely to be to recognize symptoms in their subordinates and saying, putting armor on shoulder, Al, I've noticed for the last few weeks, maybe month, maybe two months, you've been kind of with some, something's troubling you, isn't it? I just feel it. Is it what's wrong? Uh, and because he's an open person, he or she is an open person, Al is more likely to respond and open up themselves. Because open people, open people who have these social skills are people who are prepared to admit their own vulnerabilities, which enables people they're working with to open up. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenon 
phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. In fact, if you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. So the solution to red flag number two, I think it's pretty obvious, Al. Train your managers again. If there's one thing you do as a business, train your managers. If you're not sure where to look for this type of line management training, get in touch with us. We have a phenomenal provider that we can put you in touch with. Just please train your managers. As you know, Kushboo is head of engagement and inclusion at Metro Bank. The Challenger Bank is only 13 years old and already it has grown to 3,000 employees. Investing in managers was a fundamental part of this growth story. As Kushboo explains. So the, I guess the philosophy is, like I said, all about service, all about being different. Um, and we've evolved, you know, we've we've grown up from this small bank to a bigger bank and we've got a different set of leaders in place which are leading the way forward and our ambition to be the UK's best community bank. Um, and I guess a key part of what, what you've just said is around what the leaders do and what the leaders say and what the tone from the top is. Um, and... I guess at Metrobank, maybe it's because it's a smaller organisation. We've got just under four and a half thousand colleagues. But actually, our leaders are so open. Um, they speak to our colleagues, they talk to our colleagues, they take ideas. But actually, when we're running with something, it's a joint effort. It's not being told, this is what we're doing, go and do it. It's let's talk about it. This sounds like a good idea. Great, let's do it together. So you're already bought into something when you're doing it. There is an ongoing debate as to whether leaders are born or made. I still see many posts about it on LinkedIn. And the truth is that believing that leaders are born is a pretty outdated way of thinking. The majority of the research shows us now that management skills, these soft skills can be trained. Your managers in your business can be trained. So rather than asking yourself if people are natural leaders, ask if they're trainable ask if they are coachable. You're right. If we have less EQ'd line managers, they're going to be reluctant to do this uh, because they don't know how to handle people because they're not good at handling people full stop. But we can train those 40% that are trainable into this and saying, look at being open means you're prepared. Recognize the changes of behavior of your employees. If you see major changes in your behavior, provide opportunities for you to discuss it with them, what what might be the drivers in this, what might be causing this problem, and see if you get the social supports they need to deal with it. It could be a marital problem. 
could be a financial problem. Who knows what it is? But, you know, why not? They, they come into the workplace and they're not automatons. What's going on outside affects them inside. So you could just ignore it and say, it's not my problem. They have financial problems. They have mental health problems. They have relationship problems. Not my problem. It is your problem because they come in with those problems. And that's why the evidence on EAPs is that it works. It pays off to the bottom line. Carrie Wanick went on to explain that the secret of culture is allowing open conversations with managers who care. I couldn't really believe it was that simple, though. It is that simple. I mean, it sounds silly. I mean, you think, oh, no, that, it can't be that. It is. That's what that. Who's your culture as an employee? Your culture is your boss and your work colleagues that you see every week. Right. That's your it's not the chief exec. The chief exec has his or her own team. That's their culture. They, they, you know, they talk about a, a, it's like the National Health Service in the UK. Everybody talks about it like we've got to do this with the NHS as if it's a, 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 an oil tanker heading toward a port, right? And now we're going to do that and it's going to shift the whole world. They don't think about it as a flotilla of tons of little ships, i.e. hospitals. And you say, if you're smart, you would say if you were the head of the NHS, do you see that port over there? How you get to that port, I don't care. Because you have different demographics than, the, than another boat in the flotilla. So you decide how you're going to get there. You determine your navigation toward that port. Given the context of your demographics, the problems you face, and everything else. And that's what it's all about. So, for me, in an organization, the culture that affects you the most are your work group, your team. Those are the ones who affect you and the line manager. And so, the more we can get that good communication within everybody there who feels safe and comfortable and talking about issues and problems, the better. And so it's not, I don't think it's that complicated. It's only complicated because we don't have enough of those people who are in managerial roles who have that competency. And if you're, if you're having this thought, can I just stop you there, please, listener? If you are thinking, oh man, this sounds really woke. It sounds really like it's, you know, we're going to have so much fun every day at work, aren't we? With all these serious conversations knocking around, conversations about money, about well-being, relationship problems. <sighs> Take a breath. I'll do it with you. <sighs> Clear your mind. Open your mind. And let's hear from Kushboo. Like, it is serious. And I think the every job is serious. You know, you guys are in the world of education and educating people is serious. I think everything has a serious element and it's so important for every single person to be doing something no matter how serious it is to take that lightened approach i mean we're talking about well-being everywhere we look today um someone's mental health someone's physical well-being someone's social well-being all of that is so important playing a part of where you spend the majority of your life right at work and if you can't have a bit of fun, and by fun, you can't, it's not mutually exclusive. You don't have fun and then not be serious. You can absolutely be serious and have fun. I'm having fun now, 
but we're talking about you know serious things and yes money is serious but do we want to make it serious so then it becomes inaccessible do we want to make it serious that it scares children that they can't talk in a bank do we want to make it so serious that there are certain groups of people you know maybe vulnerable adults or um you know disabled people who find it actually this is too serious for me and i can't use it i think we create barriers through our own version of seriousness or our own illusion of seriousness that we create and so it's not mutually exclusive we can be fun and be serious at the same time we can have fun especially if we know the signs that things are more serious as an individual your financial well-being may be coming a more serious issue if you are noticing things like you're being refused for credit you're needing payday loans you're constantly in your overdraft. You're finding your home expenses typically every month add up to more than you earn. These are signs that as an individual, you may be heading for a financial crisis. As a leader or manager, the signs that an employee may be struggling financially can include so many different things. Things like changes in behavior or mood. You know, if somebody is typically very happy and then all of a sudden they're really grumpy, that is a, that is a red flag. Uh, if they're going off sick, if you're noticing lower productivity or, or lower quality of work, if maybe they're working more overtime or they're delaying their retirement plans. Being emotionally intelligent isn't about rejecting fun. It's about knowing when it's appropriate. And ultimately, great leaders know how to communicate with different people in different ways. Ryan started his career, very interestingly, in professional football under one of England's best known managers, Harry Redknapp we had to ask him about his experience. Does he rate Harry as a manager? I was only a professional for, for a couple of years um, and didn't play for the first team, um, travelled with the first team, but didn't have you know loads of exposure to, to, to Harry. But I think he was just, the way he communicated, the way he made you feel. You know, I, I listened to other players I played with, like Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, and what they've said about Harry and what others have said about uh, Harry Redknapp. And... They all say the same thing, you know, the way that he would be able to communicate with different people in different ways, realising that some people needed an arm around the shoulder, some people needed some harsh words, possibly, said, that, that would be a positive, really, to G them up and, and make some impact. Um, but I think what, what most good leaders have, whether it's in, in sport or, or business, that they make their employees or their teams feel like, they want to give 100, 110% for that person. You know, if, if they don't, we hear a lot that I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let my manager down or, and, and if you've got that, you know, if you've got that genuine um, respect for your manager, again, whether it's sport or business, uh, I think that's a great starting point. Okay, so red flag number three is that you are trim treating the symptoms, not the underlying problem. Most organizations have some kind of support in place related to financial well-being, whether it's like your pension scheme or an EAP, or perhaps you help people who are struggling with finances and you have a dedicated person to do that. So, so some of these might be really popular. For example, if someone, if employees are accessing like um, the equivalent of an early pay advance quite often, you might think, oh, well, there you go, that's helping. But that might just be solving the problem, not necessarily looking at a solution for it, the underlying issue. You need to ask yourself, what are your benefits actually focusing on? Is it cure or is it prevention? If you are seeing 
one particular type of your financial support being uh, like a high take up on it, then perhaps it does suggest there's some underlying training that you can do there. Maybe it's like focusing on budgeting or managing debt. Well, it's dedicated to financial education and well-being uh, training and supports employers of all kinds of sizes across all sectors across the UK. They offer more than 20 interactive group workshops online and in person, which cover the range of themes and topics which are related to financial well-being. Ryan explained this approach creates a psychologically safe space and also helps to bring employee and leadership teams together to talk about money. Let's hear more from Ryan. One of the really nice kind of bonuses for, that we've seen from from our group workshops that, that we did, and, and there's lots of companies that offer group workshops or presentations or webinars or seminars, whatever it might be. And we try to do things a little bit different. We try to make them as engaging as possible. We don't like talking at people for any length of time. So we really try to start to make our sessions really engaging, really, um, you know, um, giving people the chance to get involved with the session as much as they want. And what we found from that is that it became more of a culture piece. So it's an education piece. Obviously, we're trying to help educate and improve confidence and knowledge, but also using it as a way to talk about money. Metro Bank is also an advocate for financial education from childhood to adulthood. I asked Kushbu about this important aspect of Metro Bank's work and not only how it impacted its customers, but how it impacted its employees. You know, our ambition is to be the UK's number one community bank. Um, and it's really connecting with the people that we serve. And so, you know, our, um, I talked about the fact that we've got stores, not branches. So the memories of um, or what comes to mind as a stereotype of a branch is you go in, if you've got kids, tell them to shut up. You better be dressed nicely. And it's all this Mary Poppins stuff about, you know, don't crack a joke because <laughs> it's too serious in here. Um, Metro Bank's not like that at all. So all of our stores are based on a retail environment. And you walk in and you've got these bright colours. If it's half term, there's a kids club going on. We're dog friendly. A big, big draw in for me because I love dogs. So, you know, you'll see a dog with doggy treats. Um, we've got them on the counter. Um, you know, doggy bandanas, like I said, kids clubs and activities. We um, do free financial education for children. And part of that module, we have school trips come in. So it's a really lively atmosphere that fits into our community. Yes, we do all the serious stuff. You know, we do banking, we do mortgages, we do business banking, and we support our communities in the traditional banking way as well. But there's a whole host of other things that we do. Um, and, you know, really, really proud of all of that stuff. Cushby went on to explain that Metro Bank's commitment to community also feeds into their talent strategies and education programmes. So it's been quite a journey um, and we've just come through the back end of what we've called our transformation period and sort of really regrouping quite a few things and business strategies. Um, I've mentioned it a couple of times, um, you know, our connection to the community is really, really vital to us. And as we grow, it's looking at all these other nuances that come back to the heart of our strategy. So at the heart of our strategy are people and our colleagues. So our colleagues are at the centre of everything we do, hence why well-being is so important, um, hence why we're driving it forward. Um, the journey onwards is keeping that connection to the community. So 
again, through traditional banking mediums, but through things like our apprenticeship programme, where we're focusing on socioeconomic diversity and making sure that we look at some of the most deprived areas in the UK and making sure that opportunities are offered to candidates in those areas, making sure that we expand financial education to not just children. We've looked at uh, care leavers. We're looking at families. We're looking at armed forces. How can we spread our expertise and reach as many people as we can in our community and really making a difference to our community whilst also doing the day-to-day banking? You know, going back to what I was saying about supporting our communities and children from a young age, well, let's get them passionate about money. Let's get them passionate about education. You know, we're in a world right now where, unfortunately, money might not be a great thing to talk about, you know, at home life and children feed off these things. So let's give them some positive on how money can be positive and how you can help yourself and how you can help yourself with money. Um, And we're doing that with various other things. I think, you know, finance in general, and particularly with women, um, the the stats are... uh, absolutely staggering of how women in finance there's just not enough of them and metrobank we're massively massively ahead of the curve so we're almost at 50 50 male and female which is brilliant as an organization um, and we're just trying to look up that level of representation and make sure that's reflected at senior levels as well but on the opposite end we're actually building a program right now with our technology team and looking at stem for children So going into classes with children, talking about technology, talking about finances, you know, not just leaving it as money, partnering with other firms who might have ideas around the technological side. And we've got a large technology team. Let's go out and share the expertise. So, you know, building that passion in others just sees that passion filter on through through life. And I think it's really important for children to learn that passion is important. It shouldn't die out when you're all grown up. So the guide that Leanne mentioned to before, the 2023 guide that Kerry and his team put together, stresses the importance of education. We need to ensure that we're offering employees sustainable solutions. They suggest that doing things like setting up financial well-being and literacy programs alongside the practical guidelines and tools in the EAP can help employees to develop the skills to manage their finances. So in short, we need to both address the short-term problems, but also the underlying problems. Yeah, I think it really is a combination of of providing solutions that support the immediate pain, whilst also empowering people to experience more positive financial well-being in the long run. So our fourth red flag is your employees aren't accessing support. We hear a lot about this from organizations, leaders saying things like, I have all these benefits in place, but nobody seems to be using them. It is really, really common. And actually research from CIPD in 2022 found that actually only about 40% of organizations had communicated their full benefits package to their workers. That might sound a bit, you know, if you're an employee, you might be thinking that sounds kind of stupid. But actually think about EAP programs. A lot of them will offer tens and tens and tens of benefits, everything from health to, to cash back to you know, shopping, saving schemes to online physio to gym passes, they really are comprehensive. So yeah, communicating the full package can be a challenge for organizations. We've spoken to several high profile guests about 
benefits, about communicating benefits in the past, and they have all recommended the same thing. When it comes to benefits, don't worry about doing more, worry about doing better. And by being better, they mean better in communicating the benefits you have and engaging people in them. Karen Sancto from Microsoft in our corporate giant episode talked about this a lot and gave some awesome advice. So do go back and check that out. But of course, engagement isn't just reserved for the Fortune 500. Smaller businesses do need to invest in engagement too. Kushbeer explains colleague engagement is an intentional thing at Metrobank. So my role is a brand new role at Metrobank. So I've been with Metrobank for uh, just under five years. Um, and so I started in the corporate and commercial side and I brought Metrobank into Wales. And so this role came up six months ago and I was like, me, pick me. So it covers everything to do with our amazing culture, um, everything to do with colleague engagement, everything to do with DNI, and everything to do with well-being. Um, all of these things have added on bit by bit. Um, and I keep saying, um, you know, to our leaders who accept it and understand it, I feel like a startup business, right? So it's a new role. And actually, we thought it was this big. And by this big, I mean small, but it's bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and the concept is bigger and bigger. And as an organisation that puts our colleagues at the heart of everything we do, we know it's bigger and bigger. Um, so, you know, that's how well-being fits into it. And they're all interlinked, you know. Um, well, I, I said something in my interview that without... Um, you let me think of it a second. You can't have engagement. You can't have you can't have a good culture without colleague engagement, and you can't have either without diversity and inclusion. And I think well-being just fits into all of that um, badged up. And I think you know if you look after your colleagues, I read a really interesting article. If you look after your colleagues, everything that follows with the customer will just come. So communication is really important, obviously, but also it's really important to be able to signpost people, to be able to tell people what is available. So the key to that really is training your managers, your leaders, your well-being leads um, in what actually is available within your company. In March 2020, Ryan started the not-profit called Let's Improve Workplace Wellbeing, which was specifically to support HR and mental health practitioners with exactly this. So we, we started that in March 2020. Um, myself and then um, Nuz Shagan, who's here at the um, the exhibition as well. And really, it was just an idea to help some of our clients, some of the HR managers. There wasn't really so many well-being leads then. It was just kind of HR managers or PAs or whoever it might be at a company that was tasked to not only help everyone, but sort well-being out as well, which was a very new area for some. Um, and they, they needed help. They didn't really know where to turn, what the elements might be, you know, mental health, financial well-being, physical, social, lots of different elements of well-being. Where do you go to learn all this stuff? It's a very new role. So the idea was just to try and bring people in that role together to help them share challenges and have a bit of a network, a, a peer support group to, um, to, to help them and, and to learn more and, and improve the well-being at their own organisation. So that was the idea. Um, we had lots of online events back then, um, lots of people gave up their time to speak and people came to them and, and now it's, uh, an official, um, not-for-profit, you know, community interest company, a CIC that NUS runs and, and I help with, um, and it, it's a holistic approach to wellbeing as well. Obviously where that fits in with Finwell, we, we like to think we might be able to help on the financial side and support members, you know, 
whether they've got budget or not, you know, which can be the case now that companies are going through this cost of living crisis as well, not just employees. So just to try and be, you know, um, supportive and knowledgeable in that area, I suppose. So clearly it's not necessarily about offering more. It's ensuring that people are picking up and taking up what you're already offering. And of course, it's all the more important if you are taking some benefits away, like, for example, remote work. Lots of companies are pulling people back to work, which is seen as actually taking something away, a benefit away from the employee. Yeah, I mean, if you are interested in the cost breakdown of work from home versus work from the office, do head back to that episode that we mentioned, is work from home dead, the impact of the cost of living crisis? Because there is an argument that calling people back into the office could add on financial pressures in terms of commuting costs or childcare. So if you switch from a fully remote to a hybrid policy or fully back in office policy in the last 12 months, have you had that conversation with your employees about how it's impacting them financially? I worry that a lot of small businesses are currently basing their hybrid or remote working policy based on all the big tech companies that we've seen a flurry of them over the last six months start to call people back into the office because typically traditionally the big tech firms have been known for best practice when it comes to culture well as care explains not anymore zoom has told their employees they have to be in a minimum of three days can you believe it first of all they thrive on the fact that people are working from home most of these companies thrive on it yet they're doing that don't assume that the good people firms are the IT firms. They're not necessarily at all. So there are companies that really know how to deal with these kinds of issues. Um, and we're getting more of them because more and more companies are thinking about well-being in a more strategic way. And so, I mean, I, we did some work, um, Robertson Cooper, my ex-Manchester University spinoff company, did work with Mace, the big construction builders. And we were going quarterly to the senior leadership team. That's the CEO and his team once a month, talking once a quarter, talking about, we had a contract to do work with them on well-being, develop it strategically. And we said, okay, we've done employee well-being audits. We got the employee voice now. We know that there's that problem in that part of the business and that problem in that part of business. We're going in and intervening. So we go in and intervene. We would then bring back the data on the before and after of the intervention. Sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't. When it wasn't, we'd say, we tried that, didn't work, but we know why it didn't work. So we're doing that. That's what it should be about. And you have a strategic plan. You're getting employee voice. You're finding out that they have financial that people who are, a number of people have financial well-being issues what are we going to do about it how are we going to deal with that and in in the whole organization so it this is this is doable but you have to get open communications the point is that every change you make in your business is essentially an intervention that will impact your people and culture whether it's intentional or, or not if you're collecting the data, if you're doing the work to get those insights, you'll know the impact of that change, you know the impact of that decision, you'll know if it's successful or not. My beef with remote work is that leaders are saying remote work isn't working, productivity is down, we need to bring people back into the office, and they're not actually recording that data. They don't have the proof. Where is the data? Yeah, like we've said before, you wouldn't make marketing or sales decisions without looking at the analytics or the conversion rates 
So you shouldn't really be making decisions about people without collecting data and analyzing that data carefully. So that's red flag number four is that people aren't necessarily aware of what is available. I mean, if you're not, or you feel that if you're a leader and you're not sure everyone knows, or if you're an employee and you don't know, perhaps it's time to start communicating. Perhaps it's time to start training managers and ensuring that everyone knows exactly how to signpost. I think that's actually a really good, is it, they call it a litmus test. Mm, when you do the little, so, yeah, yeah. It's just if you're a leader, go, can I list all my benefits? Oh, that's and a good if you one. can't, might be worth just, you know, having a little look. So red flag number five is ignoring links to learning and development. Yeah, so this might seem a bit a bit out of place to like, what has L&D got to do with financial well-being? Well, when we think about it, learning and development is really enabling employees to progress in their careers. And that in turn is going to help them increase their earning potential. You know, we've heard a lot over the last six months, you know, the war for talent being won by these bidding wars in terms of salary. And that does seem to be slowing down. But even so, employees know that they're that increasing their skills, enriching their experience does mean bigger paychecks down the line. If you don't offer employees access to opportunities, development, training opportunities, this is a red flag. Ask yourself questions like, can employees easily access development and training resources? Can colleagues access information about job openings? Are employees encouraged to have regular development conversations with their line managers? If you answered no to any of those questions, enhancing your learning and development programs is a matter of priority. Let's hear more from Kerry. It's about partly your career. It's about the rewards you get. By the way, there are, there are psychological rewards as well as financial rewards, right? In other words, if you think about this, I might be asked to go somewhere uh, I might be recruited for a job. It's a job I actually would like to do, but they don't pay me half of what I currently get paid. So that's a career issue, but it's also a financial issue for me. I had that happen to me once where I got offered a job at a very prestigious university or you know, much earlier in my, in my career and everything, but it wasn't gonna pay me very much. And I had four kids or, I can't remember at that time, maybe it was only two. I can't, I just can't remember. It was ages and ages ago. Okay, so I decided to stay with the money, but I could do my own thing where I was anyway. So what do I need that, you know, those kinds of issues come up all the time. And that determines, that affects your financial circumstance. Say I would have taken the job at this place, but ended up ending up with four kids probably would have stayed with two at the time, but say I would have, that would have been, that would have cost me, caused me a lot of problems. Maybe my wife, oh, my wife actually uh, was working at the time anyway, but let's say she wasn't, she may then have to go to work. So all those kinds of issues about uh, your career, uh, your rewards, and there are a lot of rewards you get from a job which are not necessarily financial and you might want to stick with the job, but 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 it causes financial complications for you if you do. So and a lot of people can say that. I'd love to do that, but I, I can't do that because it doesn't pay me enough money. So I think all those four kind of constructs, you know, just are, are interactive, interdependent, and they they affect your uh, financial financial well-being. 
And once we have these learning and development programs in place, it's also really important that we engage people in them, especially those from minority groups. Your L&D strategy should align with your EDI strategy. Let's hear more from Kushbu and the work she's doing at Metrobank. Um, look, we've, we're at a great starting point. So we're 50-50. We're almost 50-50 as well with ethnicity diversity as well across our organisation. So again, that's another big plus. Um, what we did last year was introduce our first ever diversity and inclusion strategy. So formalising a little bit of what we're already doing. And now we're taking that a step further into, right, gender and ethnicity isn't all of D&I. Right. It goes far further than that. So we're looking at what other characteristics do we look at? And it becomes really interesting because quite often you'll be able to see sex. Quite often you'll be able to see ethnicity. Not all the time, but quite often. But then you come into the invisible characteristics. Um, you know, you look at sexual orientation or perhaps religion. And how do we how do we learn about this representation and how do we make it more visible? Um, and so the first step for me is across our organisation, encouraging that visibility. And so having our senior leaders, having our executive teams talk about these things that aren't obvious. You know, I'm Kushbu. I've got an invisible disability. I'm on the senior leadership team. I'm telling you this because X, Y and Z. And helping our colleagues understand that inclusion is not just because we say it's inclusion. Inclusion is all around you. But let's talk about it and let's start the conversation. We've got um, we've got employee resource groups. We've got five of them. So we've got one that looks at females. We've got one that looks at well-being. We've got one that looks at um, ethnicity and culture. We've got um, one that supports our LGBTQ plus community. And who have I missed? Who have I missed? My mind's gone blank. Who have I missed? Families. Families. That's who I've missed. And families that looks at different families. So all of these groups, you know, help help around the education, around the support, about the visibility and bringing it to life at Metrobank. Because again, it's not something that you can say and tick a box in. It's not a place of attainment. It's an ongoing thing. It's a way of life. It's a behavioural change. And it's here to, to stay. So it's no good saying we're inclusive. We've got to do the inclusive. Um, and, you know, it's not a noun, it's a verb. I keep saying that with well-being, with diversity, with inclusion. It's not a noun, it's a verb. And you've got to keep that doing and keep it going. And so there's lots of things that we're looking at. Um, in particular, we're looking, so we've got this representation across our organisation. We want to make sure that's levelled up with senior leadership. Um, and I think across lots of organisations, financial institutions in particular, when you look at the higher levels, that's when the representation and diversity drops. So how do we make that better? Um, how do we talk about it better? How do we drop the barriers to allow all people from everywhere to get into these roles? So that is our fifth red flag. If you are not linking financial wellbeing to your learning and development programs. Brilliant. So should we just quickly go through those five red flags and, uh, and uh, summarize? So red flag number one is that you don't have the data. You're not collecting it. Red flag number two is that no one's talking about it. Red flag number three is that you're treating the symptoms, not the underlying problem. Red flag number four is that your employees just simply aren't accessing the support you're, you're, you're making available. And red flag number five is you're ignoring learning and development training. Now, if you work, through, work your way through all of these five flags, then you're going to end up with a really, really good financial well-being program in place. But 
that takes time. What can you do right now if you know that someone is struggling financially? You can ask them one simple question. Are you okay? Well, number one sign is people are taking off more and more time, but they're taking off for stress more and more. The difficulty is maybe if they're not prepared to, if they're not open about, if they feel the organization's not open for them to talk about their financial circumstances, they're certainly not going to tell them why they're off ill. Let's just say they're off ill more and more. They might not be saying they're off for stress, but they're off a lot. There, there's a whole load of signs. Their behavior changes over a period of time. So normally when they're very extrovert, they become more socially withdrawn. So there's behavioral changes, which indicate to uh, a, a manager, business owner, an SME owner, or any, any manager, they are behavioral changes. Somebody who usually is very humorous, affable, becomes more socially withdrawn, all those kind of subtle behavior changes. You see them. And the way you know as an individual you're behaving differently is when somebody says to you, um, you don't seem yourself, Carrie. You know, are, are you okay? Um, or you, somebody asks you, are you okay? And your response, your nonverbal re response tells you the way you look at them your body language that they're not okay, even though that what they may say is, yeah, I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. How many times did people say that when they're asked that? They do. So looking at the nonverbal forms of communication, looking at change of behavior, looking at sickness absence rates, uh, listening to what employees have to say about other people. And if you're a good manager and you're walking the talk, then you're going to hear all sorts of rumors, you know, chat from employees about other employees. You know, Fred's a bit strange these days. He's not really part of the team, blah, 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 all of that. That's what you have to look for. But to do that, you have to be a socially sensitive person. You have to really be a manager. That's what a manager should be. I would like to finish this episode with some parting words of wisdom from Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. For business leaders, when it comes to managing the expectations of my favorite generation, the Gen Z, some people say their views are unreasonable, others say they're transformational. Here's Kerry's take. But it all sparks from the passion, the commitment, you know, not looking after just yourself and thinking, oh, I want to make sure my job's secure. I'm just thinking this is the right thing to do. If I fail, I fail. I, if I lose my job, I lose my job. And I, I believe in it. And I think that's what we need more of. And particularly in the context of the UK, for example, with Brexit, boy, do we need more of it. Brexit was the biggest mistake ever, ever uh, in, in the UK. It's, it's been very, very damaging to business. So we need, we need to reignite the passion. And, and we have a lot of people who are very passionate about what they do. Get it out there. But, you know, the insecurity, the financial insecurity, the job insecurity is driving much more conservative behavior. And we need to get rid of that and just let rip. Maybe the next generation will do it. In fact, I think so. 
The Z generation, the young millennials are a different breed. First of all, they don't have mortgages, so there's no security to worry about. They don't have it. And they call them the snowflakes, that generation. And that's because they flip from one organization to another. You know why they do that? They saw what happened to their parents. Their parents were the 2008 to 2012 financial crisis. They saw how they were dumped by organizations. It was lack of loyalty. These people want good quality of working life, and they're not afraid to ask for it. And that's our future. Thank you so much to our three incredible guests today, to Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, to Kushbu Patel, and to Ryan Briggs. What a phenomenal panel you were. Thank you for all your advice. We will leave the links to all of our guests in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to the financial wellbeing report that we've mentioned and structured this episode on. Yep, we would love to continue the discussion on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for Truth, Lies and Work. You'll find us. Leanne's on there all the time. I'll occasionally pop up and say something salty and then disappear for another week. Uh, but yeah, no, we do. We, we really want to continue this conversation and, and we want to hear what you think of this. So if there's something we've missed out, let us know. Talking of missing out, do not miss next week. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it is a serial entrepreneur. Um, he has got about 15,000 different businesses. He's been in New York Times. Um, he's been all over the place. He is related to a previous guest we had or guests. So you may be able to work that out. But I love talking to him. It was a massive inspiration talking to him. And he is coming next week. So make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you don't miss it. See you next week. Bye bye.